Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to this fourth in a series of podcasts on various aspects of human consciousness, including gender identity, gender fluidity, and the last podcast I focused on the subject of the archetypal feminine. And in this podcast, I will share with you something from a talk that I gave years ago on the subject of the archetypal masculine. It was a lecture and workshop that I gave to the Jungian Society in San Diego, and I based my talk on the ancient story, the Greek myth, of the fleece of the golden ram. And here is a portion of the introduction to that talk. It is true that I have often spoken on the subject of femininity, so much so that some of you in the audience are starting to speak of me rather loosely as the goddess lady and even the witch lady. Frankly, I don't know which of those titles is the more dangerous for me. But at any rate, I decided it was time for balance, time to speak of masculinity, of kings and heroes and bloody villains. Actually, one of my closely guarded secrets, at least, when I'm giving one of my goddess speeches, is that my astrological sun sign is Aries, that powerful, masculine sign of the ram. Aries is indeed a Latin word meaning ram. And whether or not one puts any stock in astrology, I know I've spent a great deal of my life dealing with very strong ram energy and trying to understand it. So tonight I will speak to you about the golden fleece of the great ram, masculinity in myth and psyche. I should say right here at the beginning that when I use the word masculine, I do not mean male. Masculinity, as I will be speaking of it, is a psychological dynamic, a pattern of behavior, a set of values and attitudes. And almost everyone in our masculine-oriented culture men and women, have been so instilled with these attitudes and values, and we operate mainly out of these patterns of behavior. And so what I have to say will pertain to both men and women. And naturally, when I speak of femininity, by way of contrast, I'll be speaking of a different style of behavior, a different set of values and attitudes, also present and operative in both men and women. Further, what I say will reflect merely my own understanding of the masculine. I do not claim for it any further authority than that. I want to say a bit about the evolution of the symbol of the golden ram. The golden ram is, first of all, an ancient symbol. There is a cave drawing in the African desert dated around 9 to 10,000 B.C., of a standing ram with a sun disk between its horns. Notice that this association of the golden sun energy with that of a great ram is an abstract concept joining two separate images. There's no such thing in nature. The cave drawings and sculptures older than this one are are almost all naturalistic images or symbols. Of the Great Mother, for example, those wonderful, fat, pregnant, nursing female symbols of the source of life. Now, 
we must understand those older symbols of the Great Mother if we're to understand the solar realm. For the concept of the solar realm evolved naturally out of these older symbols. As I've said, archaeologists and scholars agree that this Great Mother, carved in bone and stone and wood, painted in caves and made altars too on mountaintops, from as early as, oh, 200,000 B.C. and maybe earlier, we find evidence of a religious attitude toward this essence or source of fertility and creativity. Mother Earth, out of whose body grew all life, even the sun seemed to rise in the morning out of the Earth's body and to set in the evening back into the Earth's body so that the early myths say that the sun was the child of the earth mother as everything else was. But the earth was the closest and most essential thing in life, out of which all arose, by whom all was nurtured, and to whom all returned. To these ancient peoples, too, the great mother was also mother nature, the elemental, dynamic power and process of nature. At that early time, people mostly learned to align oneself correctly with nature so that they could survive. One didn't think of arguing with Mother Nature or separating oneself from the rest of nature. One learned in real physical experience how nature worked, what she required. In order to survive, one related oneself to the seasons and to the cycles of life and plants, dependent on nature dependent on wild animals for food, especially animals like the wild horned animals, the rams, the bison, the cattle. Then they depended upon herds of wild animals that humans followed as the animals migrated, moving with the seasons, as they had to, to obtain food. They had to hunt what was available. In countless ways, we see evidence of how primal peoples were enfolded in nature. And as for the sun disk in that symbol, all humans clearly saw the benefit and value of the sun's warmth and light, essential for life. And humans far, far back, very far back in human history, humans saw that from the sky, the place of the sun, the residence of the sun by day, that a lightning strike could come down and fire would be created, a spontaneous fire, a chance fire, or from a concentration of sunlight that accidentally set something ablaze. Fire was something very valuable that was so valuable. Heat and light at night to keep predators at bay, to cook, to stay warm, and so forth. As humans traveled, they carried with them embers from old fires, embers sheltered from extinction by rain or, or other means. And then something extraordinary happened. From depending on chance fire, spontaneous fire, or the embers from old fires, ancient people, perhaps, oh, three or four hundred thousand years ago, learned to make fire, to control fire, to make fire at will. That was like bringing a bit of the power of the sun right down into human hands, giving humans a bit of the godlike power 
of father-son. Now one didn't have to risk freezing through the cold winter. One could build a fire. Now one didn't have to depend on the embers carried by the firekeeper. Humans were not so much at the mercy of the predators or enemies who sneaked up on them in the dark night. Humans had acquired a new power, firepower, sun power, that set them apart from the rest of nature, which didn't have that awareness or skill to make and control fire. But even with this awesome skill, humans were still, in all other ways, dependent on the Earth Mother and continued to see her as the power to be reckoned with because for their food, humans had to continue to follow the wild herds that only she could provide, if she chose, for her human offspring. And then around nine or 10,000 BC, everything changed about the same time as the image that I described in the African pictograph was dated. A group of human beings domesticated a group of animals. And the first group of animals domesticated was the sheep with their great rams. Experts now say that dogs were not domesticated for another 1,500 years after sheep. Goats for another 2,500 years after sheep. Cattle and pigs for another 3,000 years after sheep. So sheep, with their powerful male rams, were the wild creatures that humans first brought under their control. With the domestication of sheep, humans came to rely for survival less and less upon a precarious and seemingly magical resonance with the earth mother who provided the wild game, but to rely more and more upon their own awareness, power, and skills. With the domestication of sheep, humans could settle down in favorable spots, develop towns and extensive social connections, specialize labor, and begin the process we came to call civilization. And so that cave drawing of around 9-10,000 B.C., coinciding exactly with the time sheep were domesticated, of a ram with a solar disk between its horns, is, I think, the sign writ large of humans' emergent sense of a new kind of power. This power was not that of the Great Mother with her caves and rivers and fertility and the interdependency of her creatures, but of the Great Father, if you will, of the sun, of the heat and light. This drawing is a sign, this, this pictograph that I was describing, is a sign of the now rapidly developing kind of human consciousness, directing and channeling and altering the course of nature by his own observation, reason, wit, organizational skill, creative imagination, raw courage and bravado in the face of nature. Again, notice in the cave drawing that the combination of the two symbols into one, the ram and the sun, the ram with the sun sign between its horns, is an abstract construct not to be observed in nature, but only in the creative arena of human imagination. So the solar ram 
is very much a sign of a certain kind of abstracting, imaginative human consciousness. For a human being, a relatively small animal with no saber teeth or claws or even a warm fur coat, to hunt successfully wild animals, to control fire, and eventually to domesticate sheep, particular mental skills had to evolve. First, the quality of especially acute, focused observation or awareness. Noticing over and over precisely what happened and when and how and under what conditions. Being able to focus on a particular happening. Then association between two like things. And then drawing conclusions. If sheep do this at this time every year and we do that, then this will be the results. Then comes remembering year in and year out what worked and what didn't. And comparing and then miraculously, it seems in retrospect, planning ahead, projecting far into the future, and associating unlike things, seeing analogies, abstracting, symbolizing, imagining, and so is evolved and sharpened a particular kind of focused analytical consciousness that gave these individuals an incredible new power over the rest of nature and thus separated them dramatically from the rest of nature and separated from each other. Human beings vary greatly in the amount of focused consciousness each has built up and can maintain. And so this sense of being separate, I know this and this and this more than you know or less than you do, helped to evolve in humans what we might call the individual ego, the highly personalized conscious sense within each individual person, that I know I am this, unlike you who are that, unlike anyone else. Analytical consciousness separates us out from the herd, out of our enfoldment within the rest of nature. And so, we see the emergence of the symbol of the solar ram as the principle of assertive, rational force. In India, one soon finds the male god Indra riding on a ram, as does, of course, the god Rama. The Nepalese guardian of the universe rides on a ram. The ram becomes the Chinese god of fortune. Then in some languages, the word for sheep becomes also the word for worth and value. <laughs> so we see that now one's very value and worth depends on one's ability to gain control of nature, of the flocks, the herds, to manage them successfully, to trade them productively, and so forth. This assertive, managerial, controlling quality is very different from the quality of attunement to nature, following the herds of wild game, adjusting oneself to whatever given quantity of game may be available, and so forth. We see this assertive quality clearly in the language. In Old Norse, the word ram means strong. In Lithuanian, run, and to push and thrust. And in Latin, the word for ram is Ares, and Ares was the Romans' violent, aggressive, god of war. And of course we have in English 
numerous phrases like ramrod, battering ram, and so forth to show the aggressive nature of this symbol. To sum up then this accumulation of insights, the golden sun ram is the very oldest symbol, I believe, of what has been called the masculine principle. It is the sign of a human attempt to tame and control the forces of nature, of human self-assertion and dominance over nature, of male virility and phallic power, of solar rather than earthly energy, of a transcendent spirit rather than an eminent embodied spirit, of reason and abstract thinking rather than mystical, intuitive, or unitive consciousness. It is the sign of the decline of the reverence for the great mother, earth, nature. It is also, perhaps, the sign of man's attempt to separate himself from the dictates of unconscious symbiosis with the rest of nature, and the attempted assertion of ego control over the unconscious. It is the symbol, the age in which the sun, rather than the earth, was believed to be the center of the universe. And here is a bit of what I said in the conclusion of this workshop after telling <laughs> stories and talking for a whole weekend with people about the myth of the great ram, the great solar ram, and the fleece of the great ram. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful myth, and there's a great deal of psychological information to be gained there. So I, I close pointing out one detail. When two of the characters, Phrixus and Hela, are flown up on the back of the ram to the sky far away from Earth into the solar ram, Alas, in this process, Hela, the female element, falls off the ram, falls back to earth, into the waters of the sea. She doesn't die, mind you. She merely loses her human form. She goes underwater, and she becomes a bride of the god Poseidon. In psychological terms, we'd say that when one is riding so high on the masculine ram energy, one's feminine side drops back into the unconscious depths and is not accessible to consciousness as easily. She operates as an underwater goddess, as a powerful, unconscious archetype. Perhaps this happens to many of us when we first get into, especially many young men, when they just go sky high, so to speak, all out, ramming along aggressively every moment and lose touch with more tender and feelings and intuitions and so forth. Phrixus rides the ram until he brings it down in another place, in another kingdom. Then, this is the interesting part, then Phrixus sacrifices the ram. He finally sacrifices this high-flying, dominant, powerful, virile, aggressive energy, the ram force. For years I pondered this. The ram saved Phrixus' life. Why did he then 
kill it? Why then did he sacrifice it? Well, the ram is an archetype. As an archetype, it is larger than the ego, larger than any one human being could ever live out or assimilate completely. To attempt to live out an archetype totally, to become identified completely with any one archetype, particularly the great ram, is the end of any chance for a balanced, normal human life on this earth. The great golden ram belongs with the gods of Olympus, the archetypal world. It serves us well at times when we can call upon it and use it, but it would be inappropriate and disastrous to be ramming along all the time, to be heroic all the time. It is as though the buildup of human assertive, controlling power and consciousness symbolized by the ram, which was so important and needful in the evolution of the race and in the evolution of each of us, it can go too far, too high, and become a danger in itself. It can attempt to take over completely the psyche, can cut itself off from its natural roots of intuition, for example, or emotion, or instinct. It can lose its hella quality back into the sea, and then it must be sacrificed. Then some of the ram potential must be foregone in the outer life. We see friends, men and women, driving themselves faster and faster, and some voice in us cries out, Oh, sacrifice this ram. We see ram efforts of our technology altering and controlling nature so that ecological balance is destroyed, so that the water and the air are toxic and polluted, and some voice in us cries out, sacrifice this ram. We see children trained in our public schools almost exclusively for logic, objectivity, abstract consciousness, while they are led to ignore subjectivity, artistic reality, intuition, and some voice cries out, sacrifice this ram. The ram sets Phrixus down in the kingdom of Aetes, who is the son of the sun god himself. The golden fleece of the great ram is saved out of the sacrifice and hung up in the sacred grove of none other than Ares. This is a tricky business, this sacrifice of the ram. One sees people who make this sacrifice prematurely, who give up masculinity before they've ever experienced it, really. Women did this once in our culture. Some men do this as well. The ram is so awesome, so powerful, that some of us are afraid even to come near it, lest we be destroyed by it. One fears if the, that if one asserts oneself at all, will become a dictator. Or Others ride the ram for a while, then recognize the need for the sacrifice and get off the ram and make the sacrifice, but they burn up the ram entirely and not save the golden fleece, as Phrixus did. We would say they throw out the baby with the bathwater. But to sacrifice the ram and retain the fleece, to sacrifice the ram and retain the fleece is the trick. If the ram is the sign of masculine consciousness and power, then the sacrifice of the ram to the gods is a sign of awareness that masculine consciousness and power has its limits. 
it is a sign of a larger stage of consciousness, of the ego's recognition of the far vaster wisdom and power of the archetype of wholeness, of the balance between what we're calling masculine and feminine. The fleece remaining after a conscious sacrifice of an overblown masculinity is a transformed and enlarged and more powerful ego. And this kind of fleece is most valuable. Any golden fleece in Greek and Roman mythology had oracular powers. The Roman version of the god Pan was worshipped in sacred groves where the worshipper would wrap himself in a golden fleece and lie down to sleep. And during sleep, the worshipper would hear oracular voices directing his future. This power of receiving, on request, into consciousness, in good order, direct guidance from the unconscious, comes generally after the sacrifice of the ram, after we stop identifying ourselves completely with masculine consciousness in an inflated way. But when we continue to have and to honor the golden fleece, the masculine principle in balance with femininity, then we use our masculine purposefulness and courage and directed intellect, both in an outer way and an inner way, as we turn our conscious attention respectfully to the great unconscious depths. Then we wrap ourselves in the fleece and listen to the voice of the oracle, to God, or the great self. Wrapping oneself in the fleece or hide of an animal was in almost every primal culture a means of assuming identity with that animal species for a time and of assuming or taking on its powers. Shaman and Paleolithic cave paintings wear animal skins and horns. American Indians wore buffalo skins to lure buffalo to the hunt. So with the golden fleece, one can put it on when one wishes to assume masculine power and take it off when enough is enough. We don't have to be the ram, but we can wear and use the fleece when it is appropriate. Those who sacrifice or give up the ram completely lose these masculine powers, the powers of the fleece. But if we see the ram and sacrifice the ram and retain even a bit of the fleece, if we treat ram masculinity as a godlike archetype larger than the personal ego of either men or women, if we hang it up in the temple of the appropriate god in our psyche, so to speak, we find it to be very valuable, as it was for Phrixus who acquired a bride, found a fruitful union with the feminine, produced many offspring, and lived out his days in peace, which frankly was unusual in Greek mythology. So that was a bit of information from the workshop I did back in the 1970s in San Diego for a young society there. I wanted to share that and 
the story that I told in the last podcast particularly because I'm so I'm so positive about the direction that the young people in our world are going these days as they are moving more and more into a conscious state of wholeness I don't know really whether or not there is clarity in their minds any more than there was clarity in my mind in the 70s or even now about the difference between blending a lot of different behavior patterns into one between that and balancing the possibilities for all of these different behavior patterns having them as potential to use at different times and under varying circumstances in good order and in balanced ways. This kind of wholeness for me, as I described in the first and second of the series of podcasts, like the yin and yang symbol, those two uh, seemingly opposites are complements that are enclosed within the circle of wholeness in like manner I think what has been called the archetypal masculine and the archetypal feminine if it is disengaged from any dictates that that means male or female in other words if masculine doesn't just mean men and feminine doesn't mean just women I wish we could come up with a whole new name but throughout such a long time of human history those words or at least our recent human history, those words have been used. So it has been my desire to tell a little bit more of the story of the depth of, of the archetype and what it has meant and what it does mean and how powerful it is to keep that available in consciousness as the young people are, and we all are, transitioning into new and hopefully better stages of consciousness. And I will speak more about that in the next and final podcast in this series of podcasts. Thank you for being with me. I welcome your feedback. Join me again on the One and All Wisdom podcast and join me on the website where you'll find many, many other things, including a written piece there about archetypes and with some of the stories of some of the gods and goddesses of mythology that reside in our psyches, if you will. Thank you so much, and until next time, this is Glenda Taylor on the One and All Wisdom podcast. Mm-hmm.